This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Where might your farm and home not be protected? Go to nationwide.com slash Andrew for answers to help protect your next. And by Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. There have been several important ag issues find their way to the U.S. Supreme Court recently. What do those rulings mean for farmers and ranchers? Whether it's waters of the U.S. or hog crates in California, all of the decisions have a ripple impact wherever you may live. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Nationwide. Farming and land ownership comes with a share of liabilities, and you need an insurance company to help protect you. But when it comes down to it, what you really need is an individual who truly understands what you deal with each day and knows how to help you see what you may have overlooked. That's why I've partnered with Nationwide, the number one farm and ranch insurer in the nation. They have farm certified agents. Those are agents that are specifically trained to handle the needs of farmers like myself. I know there was a lot I'd overlooked, and that's why we created short videos to help address those key concerns. Go to nationwide.com slash Andrew. That's nationwide.com slash Andrew, where I host quick shows and important topics to help protect your next. This week's show is also sponsored by Pivot Bio. If you pay for nitrogen, you want to make sure you get what you pay for, of course. And as a farmer, I want a predictable, productive, and weatherproof option. But that can be hard to find. You get that predictability with Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS, a reliable form of nitrogen delivered during the most critical growth periods. Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to corn plants all season long. I'm using Proven 40 OS, and I hope you'll check it out as well. Visit pivotbio.com for more information. Perhaps you're like me, and it's hard to keep up with some of the ag issues being decided at the highest court in the land. Even if we hear about a case decided by the Supreme Court, we may wonder how it really impacts us. Ray Starling follows those issues and helps farmers make sense of the court's rulings. Ray is a lawyer who works for the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce and also speaks and consults with many groups in agriculture. He always does a great job of helping us understand the key points, and I ask him to provide his analysis of the recent rulings. Ray Starling is my guest. Ray, we're going to visit about some legal issues in agriculture, and I'm just going to jump right into these issues. One that we always hear a lot about are waters of the U.S., and we had a Supreme Court ruling earlier this year. Just kind of walk through the high-level view of that. What happened and how does it impact us now? Yeah, great, great topic to talk about. You can't talk about Supreme Court updates without talking about uh, the Sackett case and uh, how the Supreme Court wants to define or limit uh, or expand the definition of waters of the United States. So an issue in that case was was a, a gentleman who owned a piece of property out in Priest Lake, Idaho, uh, wanted to develop that piece of property. And uh, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and said, you're going to need a Clean Water Act permit to do that because Uh, Although the surface level of your property is dry, you are close enough to the lake that there's a hydrological connection underneath, uh, and therefore you are a a part of the jurisdictional wetlands of that body of water. Uh, Of course, that, you know, meant he could not develop 
Uh, and so the case goes up uh, through the courts, eventually on appeal to the United States uh, Supreme Court. And, and, you know, to be fair to the federal government in this case, uh, there was, I believe, you know, pretty clearly at one time, this notion that his property, by a pretty liberal reading uh, of the law, could be subject to that Clean Water Act jurisdiction. So, so what was happening here was the parties were really asking the Supreme Court to clarify or arguably apply a new or different standard. And at the end of the day, that's exactly what five of the nine justices uh, ended up doing. So what does that mean for a farmer anywhere in the U.S.? They may say, okay, that's way out in Idaho. How's this ruling impact me? Yeah, well, you know, clearly we, we need water in agriculture. Uh, and, and you guys in certain parts of the country needed it a little more a few weeks ago than you do now. And certainly where I'm from in southeast North Carolina, where just yesterday we got uh, five inches in four hours. Uh, we're good for a few days as well. We don't need any more. Uh, in the next few days. But but clearly, uh, you know, a lot of our properties can be in low-lying areas. They can be next to streams and rivers and waterways. Uh, lots of farmers have ponds, uh, particularly in this part of the country, which are really a, a good thing water quality-wise. I mean, any space where you've got water that allows, you know, settling out and pooling, uh, generally speaking, that's good for, for water quality. I think the, the bottom line for folks who, you know, have that mentality that, wait a minute, this doesn't affect me, that, that was an Idaho case, is you're, the jurisdictional limits of what EPA can do uh, with the Clean Water Act are now, in fact, curbed. I mean, this case, if it, if it makes anything clear, it is that, that the jurisdictional arm, if you will, of the EPA is shorter than it was just a few weeks ago. And so that test, that legal test of, hey, do I have a do I have a piece of land here? It may be a bottom, it may be wet, it may be wet several weeks of the year. Uh, is that subject to being deemed by the federal government as a wetland? You know, Justice Alito would now say only if you, you need to have that concern only if that water or that very, very wet spot uh, is, quote, indistinguishable and has a, quote, surface water connection to the body of water that is clearly navigable, that is clearly subject to EPA jurisdiction. And and as you can imagine, that that is going to eliminate a lot, a lot, a lot of of that longer arm of jurisdiction. Now, it's interesting, Andrew, because EPA has come back and said, Hey, we, we had the waters, the new waters of the United States rule. Uh, it, it is too broad based on what the U.S. Supreme Court said a few weeks ago, but not not too bad. We're just going to be able to tweak it and put it back out later this fall. In all honesty and in all fairness, EPA, I'm very puzzled by that take because clearly the, the Supreme Court has enunciated here, I think, a, a really big blow to that notion of expansive jurisdiction beyond what are traditional core waters of the United States, traditional navigable waters. And so we got to see how that comes out. We got to see what EPA is, is going to say their new rule is. Uh, and then of course there'll be a round of litigation about that. Right. So, uh, so time will tell, I, I think big picture, you know, gives us more certainty. Uh, we get to sleep a little more uh, comfortably that less of our, the kind of subsur- uh, subsurface waters that we run into in agriculture when we're out in the fields 
uh, there's less concern because then, then that would not be a continuous surface body connection. Uh, so big picture gives us a little more certainty. Let's jump over to something else that we have heard quite a bit about, which are hog crates in California. So give us an update of where we stand and what we've learned. Yeah, well, I love how you set that up because the funny thing is there aren't many hog crates out in California. There aren't many hogs, period, right? But there's a lot of people that like to eat bacon, uh, and, and which is a good thing. We like that. And uh, I mean, long story short, Andrew, that case is over and we lost. Uh, most of the agriculture community was aligned uh, to try to defeat the notion of what California had adopted here through its voter referendum, um, its constitution or, or this process that it has to just send matters directly to voters and they voted for it. Uh, we lost. There's going to be market impact in that state. Uh, that literally our timing, I think, here is great uh, because we will start to see that over the course of the next few weeks. There was a bit of a grace period for animals that were, I don't remember the exact term of art, but that were starting in production prior to June 1st. Uh, but those are going to be, and animals that were, you know, or meat products that were brought into the state prior to June 1st, even if they were ready for retail, um, that, that's going to be blown through very quickly. Uh, there's really not much production inside the state. And so we are seeing some, larger producers uh, transition uh, their, their uh, gestation systems. Uh, that is extraordinarily expensive, multi-million dollars per uh, operation to get that done. Uh, so there will be some pork, but it will be very, very expensive by the time it gets into the state. Uh, and I, I don't think that changes anytime soon. I, I think there's also this question of trade-offs because I think what we'll see in California is a good amount of black market pork. Uh, so you think about sneaking your bacon in, you know, through security at the airport. Well, here, here, there, there are a couple of ways that will happen. I mean, clearly, uh, there are, uh, you know, still quite a few ethnic communities, even in the state where I am, that you know go and slaughter their own animals and and uh, you know put up their own meat and things of that nature. Uh, clearly, some of that will happen. Folks will be doing some of that in California, regardless of how the animal is raised. Uh, but I think there's a big there's a big hole in the California law, and that is uh, if if the meat is restaurant meat and it's going to be prepared and served cooked, there's an exception. So you know it doesn't take me long to figure out I can rent uh, a truck with a reefer on it, and I can go to Nevada, I can go you know somewhere else to get meat, uh, regardless of where it's grown. Somebody can bring it, you know, 20 feet from the border. Uh, and I can meet them there in the parking lot of the sheets and, uh, and move, that, uh, move that over into my vehicle and bring it in and use it in my restaurant. I just think there's probably going to be a lot of leakage. I'm interested, were you surprised at all by the court's uh, ruling on that? I was disappointed. I wouldn't say I was surprised. I mean, the real, the real cerebral contest in that case was you would have thought that the conservatives on the court would have lined up against a California regulation, which seemed to be a little bit over the top. You would have thought that the liberals on the court would sort of align to defend uh, that nature. What, what ended up happening was the conservatives, who would have been key to getting to a, to a majority to overturn what California was doing, they don't like the idea that there's a dormant commerce clause argument, meaning that even though Congress has not regulated in this space, we are not going let, to let states occupy the space because the Congress could have regulated in that space. 
you know, that clause doesn't exist in the Constitution. The clause that we're referring to in the Constitution, the Commerce Clause says, you know, once the federal government rules, it's got supremacy. It will certainly preempt state laws in the same space. But if Congress has not acted, then for the most part in this dual federalism system we have, where both states and the federal government have some degree of sovereignty, well, then in that case, states get to do anything they are not strictly prohibited from doing by the federal government. So that the whole idea of a dormant commerce clause, which has allowed the Supreme Court to police some state level regulation in the past, even in the agriculture sector. I mean, in fact, there's an old case about apples uh, and the size of boxes that apples are shipped in. And I happen to know the folks that actually passed a rule to protect their own state's apple industry and said, you can't ship an apple into this state unless it's in this size container. Well, the folks from Washington didn't think very highly of North Carolina's regulation that they had to change their apple box size, took us to the Supreme Court. We lost and we lost under the Dormant Commerce Clause. And, and so the idea was, hey, Congress hadn't regulated in this area, but we cannot have a balkanization, if you will, of multiple states having multiple different standards that's, that's exactly not uh, a union or a United States. That, that's essentially an amalgamation of countries that have their own trade standards. Uh, so, but the conservatives on the court, because the Constitution doesn't say that, it says you only get preempted where you're actually preempted. Uh, the conservatives were skeptical of the argument all along, and the hope was that we could pull them across, and at the end of the day, that did not happen. Uh, so that, that's really what was at play there. And, and really, the case is much bigger than agriculture, uh, although the ag impacts are obviously pretty big. Uh, but, you know, what, what does it mean for uh, abortion standards, right? I mean, can I say now you cannot sell your product in my state if it comes from a state that doesn't, you know, have this right or not have that right? What does it mean about labor? You know, let's say, could a state pass a law that says you can't sell anything in our state that was produced pursuant to, uh, a, a right, not being in a right to work state, you know, being in a state that, that allows unions uh, and compulsory union membership. And so, uh, so we could sort of see a race to the bottom and some fighting back now. In fact, I've even been asked for my opinion, what can we ban from California? And uh, that, that's not exactly the, you know, what we want to do here at the Chamber of Commerce in North Carolina, but, uh, but, but it does create that race to the bottom instinct do you think we'll continue then to see more regulations then about how animals are produced in this case? Of course, it is larger than agriculture, but we're talking about the ag impact. What do you think happens going forward? Yeah, I think the big thing to remember there, just to draw back and, and not really draw on any sort of legal expertise, is what we've seen in agriculture over the course of the last 40, 50, 60, even all the way back to World War II, is economics have driven just about everything we've done in the industry. And assuming we can continue to treat animals humanely and assuming people that actually study that, the veterinarians and such, continue to tell us, look, there's no discernible difference between raising an animal this way and raising an animal that way, then I think some of these social movements are going to continue to be important. But I do think this one was a wake up call to the industry. I mean, this one, there was some pushback on this in California, uh, but but. And frankly, it did not pass by an extremely overwhelming uh, amount because I think I think there was a pretty good amount of PR that said, look, you're going to raise the cost of pork and that's going to hurt you know people that don't have money the most. 
and and you can make the own you can make your own choice about what kind of pork you buy without forcing everybody else to buy the same thing. I think the industry is a little better prepared for that now. So as we look around the country and ballot initiative states, I think ag will be more responsive, be more prepared to push back. Um, and and I, again, at the end of the day, I think we're we're not doing this for 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 reasons other than largely economic, trying to get the consumer something for less money. Another ruling we heard a lot about this summer that we may think is somewhat removed from ag is it's not a direct ag issue, was a ruling on affirmative action. But yet you've said that this is something to watch because it can certainly have impacts in, in farming and agriculture. Yeah, and Andrew, I think you and I agree about this, that it's certainly in ag as we travel the country and, and we've got a long, long history in, in FFA and 4-H and uh, we still have the need uh, to diversify uh, our, uh, the, the racial profile, if you will, and ethnic profile of the agricultural production community. Uh, in fact, there's a great company that operates here in North Carolina. I won't call them by name, but they've really done a ton of introspection to say, hey, when we look around our company, we are extraordinarily diverse across the thousands of people that work for us. We are less diverse when it comes to the leadership of the company and, frankly, the ownership of our farms. And if we're going to change that, then we have got to continue to uh, you know, support and pull in at the post-secondary level uh, a diverse amount of people. And that's a strength. We all believe that. Uh, and at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I don't know what the predictions are. I don't know what the, the data is. But at the end of the day, I guarantee that we were able to attract some students into four-year universities and agriculture programs because we had this capability uh, to consider race uh, in admissions criteria. And so perhaps there, you know, perhaps there won't be uh, a long-term concern, but I guess it just suggests to me that we need to continue to think about that in, in other ways, too. Another issue you're facing in North Carolina, but certainly can have ripple effects, is the poultry industry. Talk about what you've got going on there and, and what it means for the rest of us. Yeah, so we like to go. We like to give Iowa a hard time. They claim to, you know, have more chickens than us. Uh, but if you add chick, layer chickens, broilers, and uh, turkeys, we have more feathered friends than any uh, state in the country. Uh, and we like to think that that's largely because we've got an environment that makes it a great state to live, work, and do business, uh, particularly for agriculture. But recently we got wind that at the federal level, uh, some uh, an entity who I'm going to describe a little more in a moment has filed a Title VI civil rights complaint uh, with EPA. And the target of the complaint is actually our state Department of Environmental Quality. You heard a lot of loaded words there. You heard Civil Rights Act. And so you're probably thinking civil rights. How, how could a state Department of Environmental Quality be subject to a civil rights claim involving chickens and turkeys? Uh, well, the complaint basically is that our state regulatory system is not stringent enough when it comes to regulating the system that we use to house poultry. And so this outside group, and again, I told you I'd tell you a little more about them in a second, that they've basically filed this complaint with EPA and the EPA Office of Civil Rights and said, hey, you got to pay attention to your partners down in North Carolina. They're not doing enough to protect particularly diverse communities, particularly there's, you know, their claim is there's disproportionate harm on minority communities in the state because the state is not adequately regulating poultry facilities. The catch here is, I'd say a couple things. 
One is this complaint did not come from a local community of folks in North Carolina who felt like they are being treated poorly. In fact, we would tell you, and we're actually doing research as we speak to confirm this, uh, and the North Carolina Ag Partnership has done some of this research already. Most people think poultry is a pretty good neighbor. Uh, and there's a lot of people in those rural parts of our state that actually work in that industry. Uh, but the catch is that this complaint was actually filed by a law school clinic out of the Vermont Law School. So, you know, you can't go much further north from North Carolina and still be in the United States uh, once you get past Vermont. Uh, and the real kicker here is the very person that is now running the civil rights office at EPA is a former faculty member at that very same law school. So I don't think we're holding our breath about how this may turn out uh, when her former colleagues and former students are now sending her a complaint that she's going to get to be a part of. Uh, but, you know, the bigger takeaway here is um, I talk about this in the Farmers versus Foodies book that, that these legal threats against agriculture are coming in non-traditional ways. And for the most part, we're not really equipped to push back against them. And this is just another example of that. Well, you know, in the time we have left, let's discuss that for a moment. You talk about it in the book, but what should people be doing, uh, whether they're directly involved in farming or not? There are lots of issues, and it's easy for me to say, well, I don't know anything about the Supreme Court, let alone a state court and so forth. So what am I in this this big world? Yeah, and it's, it's always interesting to talk about a problem like that. And then someone very practical, like you says, OK, well, how do we fix it? Uh, and, and at first thing, it's, you know, we didn't get here overnight. There's actually, you know, it's taken a number of years to get here. So it's going to take a number of years to get out of this. But, but I do think there are a couple of things on the punch list. One of them is I personally believe that we need more and more agricultural folks that are actually involved in teaching in our law schools and doing research that at the end of the day uh, supports the arguments in favor of what we do in the agriculture sector. I teach an ag law class at UNC Chapel Hill. I love it. I have extraordinarily bright students. Uh, it's a seminar style class. So there's only 15 students in the class. And, and many of them come in very skeptical about the industry. And, and that's understandable because when they start writing their papers and they start doing their research, overwhelmingly what they find is criticism and critique of agriculture and less and less what I would say is sort of top shelf scholarship work defending what we do. Uh, that's not the way to win. You know, that's not going to work. Uh, in fact, this EPA complaint we mentioned just a few minutes ago, you know, you go down and look in the footnotes, they actually cite their own previous complaints. Uh, even when they've lost, uh, they'll go back and, and reincorporate the claims that they made in those earlier complaints. And they cite a, 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 an article that, that clearly is not vetted. You know, you and I could talk about this all day, the, the gateway of media is very fluid now compared to what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And so, the, you know, they'll cite a blog post, uh, they'll cite an animal rights organization's, uh, you know, research and say, aha. And so uh, I think we got to do better on the academic front. Uh, and then, frankly, last thing I'll say, I'll try to be brief about this. this these legal problems are not just one subsector's problem. Like Proposition 12 was not a pork industry problem. Proposition 12 is a threat to all of agriculture, particularly those that serve as inputs in the pork sector, right? I mean, if we at the end of the day are selling less pork in California, that means we're selling less processed corn and soybeans 
And so uh, we got to we got to figure out horizontally how to work better together instead of all of in our ag verticals, if you will. Ray, if folks want to connect with you or learn more, ask questions, how's the best way to do that? Well, I appreciate that. I'm at the I am just very lucky to be at the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce back down in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're welcome to visit our webpage and plug in there. Uh, I also do have the book that I released about a year ago called Farmers versus Foodies. There's a website for the book and a link there of how to get in touch with me. And I also moonlight a little bit with an entity called Aimpoint Research, uh, which really looks at, you know, what are the threats to the future of the agri-value chain? I'm also on their website and, and certainly do some speaking and things of that nature through them. So, uh, but appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, legal stuff. I'm sure people are just glued to the speakers uh, listening to a lawyer. Yeah. Good. Always good to visit. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farm in the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farm in the Countryside or American Countryside. And remember, you can always hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com on your favorite podcast platform or many radio stations. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Where might your farm and home not be protected? Go to nationwide.com slash Andrew for answers to help protect your next. And by Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.